We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Would you turn with me to the book of Ezra this morning? The book of Ezra. We're beginning a new sermon series today on this Old Testament book that comes immediately after 2 Chronicles and immediately before the book of Nehemiah. It's the book of Ezra. Listen, if you were to, if you were to want to summarize the story of the Bible in a succinct way, for my money, it would be hard, hard to do better than 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I'm of the opinion that in this verse, whether Paul knew it or not, whether he realized it or not, he was encapsulating the entire message of the Bible in only seven words. Just listen to what Paul says and see, with you, see if you agree with me about this. He says... When we are faithless, He remains faithful. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. Isn't that what the Bible is about in so many ways? I mean, just think about it. From Genesis to Revelation, the story that we're being told in Scripture is the story of God being faithful to His faithless people. Time and time again, they show themselves faithless, and yet time and time again, God shows Himself faithful. So as we begin this series in the book of Ezra this morning, I have really just one simple goal in mind. I want your heart to be stirred by how faithful our God truly is. I want you to walk away from the service this morning just absolutely thrilled out of your mind about the faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In just a moment, we're going to read from Ezra chapter 1 together. But before we do that, what I want to do is I want to take a few moments to trace out the faithfulness of God in the storyline of Scripture. Because it's my sense that the story of God's faithfulness in the book of Ezra actually does not begin in Ezra chapter 1. No, the, the story of God's faithfulness in the book of Ezra, really where it begins is in the Garden of Eden. It begins on that stretch of land, thousands of miles eastward from where you're sitting right now. It's in this garden, this land where God originally shows His faithfulness to His people. After all, He had given them this land as a gift. This garden was to be their home. It was the place where they would enjoy the presence of their faithful God. But of course, it didn't take long for the inhabitants of this garden to become faithless. You know the story. You know how it goes. They believe the lies of the serpent. They ended up disobeying the God of the garden. And so they were banished from their home. They found themselves in exile, sent away from the garden. And yet, even then, God did not cease to be faithful. Even as His people were banished from the garden, God gave them a promise. He told them that through one of their offspring, through one of their sons, He would come 
and find them in their exile. And through that son, all that they had made wrong through their disobedience would be made right through his victory over the serpent. Many years later, God breathed new life into this promise, this time in the land of Egypt. It was there under the the tyranny of Pharaoh and his taskmasters that God's people had multiplied to become a great nation. And after 400 years of exile, God heard the groanings of their slavery. This, of course, is the great story of the Exodus, where God is faithful to bring His people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And He brings them to the land that He promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey. After all the long years of wilderness wanderings and conquest in Canaan, God's people were now home. They were finally in that place where they would be able to settle down and enjoy life in the presence of their faithful God. And yet that's far from the end of the story, isn't it? Because even though God had been faithful to bring them to the land He had promised, the people of God, the children of God, they looked less like the people that He had called them to be And they looked more like the pagan nations around them. Though God had given His people the temple in Jerusalem where they were called to worship in His presence, they instead preferred to worship idols. Though He had given them prophets to warn them about what would happen if they didn't repent of their sin and their idolatry, God's people preferred to bury their heads in the sand and not listen to those prophets. Though God had given them kings to rule over them, they couldn't keep the kingdom united. And so it became two kingdoms instead of one, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And as a result of all these things, Israel came under the judgment of their faithful God. They were forced out of the land that He had given them. In due time, Both the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were destroyed. The once great temple in Jerusalem was reduced to nothing more than a pile of ash and rubble. And those who who, who lived in the kingdom of Judah, who survived all these things, well, they were marched to a strange land to live among a strange people. They once again found themselves away from their home, this time among the people of Babylon. And yet, even as their world came crashing down, even though they were in exile yet again, God's faithfulness still found a way to reach His faithless people. That's what the book of Ezra is going to show us at the very beginning, that God's people are never, ever beyond the reach of His faithfulness. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is always working to keep His promise. So let's look at how the book of Ezra begins. Just for a little bit of context here, I want to note that God's people are now subjects of the Persian Empire. Okay, They were initially subjects of the Babylonian Empire. Now they're subjects of the Persian Empire. Even though the the empire of Babylon was strong enough to, to swallow up the little kingdom of Judah, it would not be strong enough to resist the greater kingdom of the, of the Persians. But that's the very thing that God's going to use to accomplish His purpose for His people. So let's look at how He does that. Let's begin reading in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. 
We'll read through verse 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. So here in these verses, I am, a, I am under the impression that in these verses you have all the makings of a second exodus. I just talked about, I just described how in the first exodus, God's people were delivered from Egypt and they were brought into the promised land. Well, here in this second exodus, God's people are being brought out of Babylon so that they can return to the land of His promise. So what I want to do this morning is I want, to, I want to share with you how God's faithfulness is revealed through this second exodus in the book of Ezra. As we consider this second exodus, we see His faithfulness being revealed in three specific ways. So let's look at each of those ways. The first way we see His faithfulness revealed is in this decree that's issued by Cyrus. This will be the, the first point of the sermon. That God's power stirs the heart of a king for the liberation of his people. We see this in verse 1. That the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. But just notice what comes right before that. We are actually given a reason why God does this particular thing at this particular time. It was so that His word by the prophet Jeremiah would be fulfilled. Now that's kind of a, a curious statement, isn't it? I mean, you might be wondering, okay, I thought we're reading the book of Ezra here. Why is it talking about Jeremiah? Doesn't he have his own book? Well, that's true. To find the answer to the question of why we're talking about Jeremiah at the beginning of the book of Ezra, we actually have to look at the prophecy of Jeremiah. That's exactly what we're going to do. Specifically, I want to look at chapter 29, where God is telling His people what their future holds. And He tells them, starting in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when the seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So this is what's happening here at the beginning of the book of Ezra. The the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied has now passed and God's people find themselves at a transition point. They're wondering, okay, we've been here 70 years. We have this promise from Jeremiah that God has a, a plan for us. So what's next? Right? Where do we go from here? Well, God will tell them exactly where they're going to go from here. And to do that, He uses the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is a major turn of events for the people of God. This, this pagan king who is in his first year on the throne of Persia, he has something laid on his heart. And one of his first orders of business as king is to announce to his whole kingdom that the people of Judah are hereby released. But not only that, God's people, the people of Judah, they're released with a specific intention. Right? Cyrus is releasing them for a purpose. These Hebrew exiles have a mission. And their mission is to go back to their homeland, the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they are to rebuild a house for their God. Now you have to understand the background of what's going on here. You have to understand that when it comes to Cyrus's decree, there's a definite geopolitical dynamic at work in all of this. You see, at this point in history, at, in this part of the world, there were three main powers, three main world powers that pretty much dominated everybody else at one point or another. There were the Assyrians who conquered the kingdom of Israel in the north. There were the Babylonians who conquered the kingdom of Judah in the south. And then there were the Persians who conquered Babylon while God's people were in exile in that place. And all all three of these empires we're talking about, all three of them had very different policies when it came to conquest. Out of all three of them, the Assyrians were by far the most brutal. They had more of a scorched earth Policy where their aim was was pretty much just to wipe you out. Like they would go into a nation, they would go to a people, and they would kill and pillage and rape until that people was virtually unrecognizable. It was totally just the most brutal form of oppression. Then there were the Babylonians. And what the Babylonians wanted to do is they wanted to prove to you that their culture was superior to yours. Right? Their, their religion was better, their lifestyle was better, their food was better. And so really, it would just be best if you got on board with whatever it is they were doing. That was their MO. But the Persians were different. They were not like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The Persians were actually much more tolerant. In fact, they didn't want you to renounce your religion. Because as they saw it, if you became a subject of the Persian Empire, but you were still allowed to worship your God, then technically what that meant is that your God was now on the side of the Persian Empire. Okay, so for the Persians, the more gods they had on their side, the better. 
So what Cyrus is doing here at the opening of Ezra is he's doing something that's in his own best interest. Really, that's how he sees it. This is a politically calculated move. And yet, and yet, even though that's true, right? Even though Cyrus is getting what he wants out of this arrangement, there's something much deeper going on. That's the way the book of Ezra wants us to see this. That's why in verse 1, we're told that it was the Lord who stirred the heart of Cyrus. Ultimately, this is the Lord's doing. The Lord wants His people to be released from Babylon. He wants His people to return to the land. He wants His people to rebuild a house for His name. So while Cyrus is playing the checkers of Persian geopolitics, the Lord our God is playing a game of chess that will result in the liberation of His people. Just listen to what the prophecy from the book of Isaiah says about King Cyrus. Isaiah 45 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. The Lord says this to Cyrus. He says, I will go before you, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name, Cyrus. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So Cyrus doesn't realize it. He doesn't know it, but there is a higher reality that is operating in his decisions here. The book of Proverbs tells us that the heart of a king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns the heart of that king in whatever direction he wishes. So while the kingdoms of this earth are busy vying for their own interests, it is the kingdom of God that will prevail. The rulers of this earth, like Cyrus, they think they're serving themselves, but really, at the end of the day, they are but pawns in the hand of a higher king. They must serve his agenda. So let me ask you something. Are you worried about politics? Right, as you keep up with the news, right, as you keep up with, with social media and you see all that's going on, do you get worried about the state of affairs here in the United States and around the world? Are there wars and rumors of wars that keep you up at night? If that's true, if that's resonating with you at all, what you need is to be put back in touch with the reality that we are seeing here in the book of Ezra. That there is a God in heaven who stirs the hearts of kings. He is enthroned in heavenly places and He does all that He pleases. The earth is His footstool. 
The nations of the earth are to him like a drop in a bucket. He regards them as nothing more than the weight of a speck of dust on a scale. So friends, do not worry yourself about the politics of this age. Do not fret over what the nations of the earth may or may not be doing as Christians. Instead, we are, to, we are called to set our hearts on one thing. We are to trust in the Lord our God. We are to trust that no matter what happens, our God will be faithful to His own. He will be faithful to us. We see this in the decree of Cyrus. And we see this also in what happens next. Would you look with me at verses 5 through 11 of Ezra chapter 1? Verse 5 says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and one thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand four hundred all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So these verses, they show us the second way that God's faithfulness is revealed through this second exodus. Which is that God's people behold His superiority over the gods of their captors. Just look at what transpires in the wake of Cyrus's decree. The first thing we see is that God begins to do something in the hearts of His people. That's what it says in verse 5. God's people hear the decree of Cyrus, and many of them are able to discern what's happening here. They're able to see that, hey, this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And so we're told that what happens is a remnant of people from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi specifically were stirred to return home. And then in verse 6, we see that God provides all that they're going to need to make that journey. That's really the second thing I want you to notice is happening in these verses. Just, just notice a few things about this, right? First of all, notice that there is a parallel between verse 4 and verse 6, right? What Cyrus decreed in verse 4, or maybe it would be better to say what God decreed through Cyrus in verse 4 is carried out in verse 6. Right? So this, this remnant is raised up. They decide to return home. And they are assisted by all those who stay behind in Babylon. This is what Cyrus 
wanted. It's what he told him to do. That the Hebrews who remain in Babylon were to give silver and gold and, and, and different things to those who were going back. But notice something else. And this is really the thing I want us to concentrate on. Notice that not only do God's people receive treasures from their friends and neighbors in Babylon, but they also receive treasures from Cyrus himself. That's the main takeaway here, because look at, look at verse 7. It tells us that the treasures they receive from Cyrus are none other than those vessels from the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had plundered from Jerusalem and placed in the temple of his gods. Friends, you may not realize this, but this is a stunning reversal for the people of God. This is a stunning reversal because think about it. For seven decades, it had looked as if the God of Babylon had defeated the God of Judah. Remember, this is what Babylon was all about. They wanted you to know that their religion was better than yours. right? So from their perspective, it had looked like their God had won. We see this vividly in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us, Nebuchadnezzar had taken the temple vessels from the house of God in Jerusalem, and he placed them in the treasury of his God. Then later on in Daniel chapter 5, it says that a generation after Nebuchadnezzar had done this, it says King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, and as they drank it, it says, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So you can see how this would have been a great source of humiliation for the people of Judah. Right? They had no other choice but to, to look on and watch helplessly as their captors made a mockery of the God of Israel. These vessels being used in this pagan worship ceremony had been set apart for true worship. Right? They were supposed to be devoted to the, the worship of the true and living God. But for 70 long years, they had been stored in a den of Babylonian idolatry. By all appearances, the God of Judah had been vanquished by an inferior God. That's how it looked. But as you may know, looks can be deceiving. They can be deceiving because it turns out that the God of Judah had not been defeated. He was in fact undefeatable. The God of Judah has no rivals. And if the people people of Judah ever doubted that fact, well, there was no doubting it now. Because the gods of Babylon had received their comeuppance. Right? The tables had turned to show that the God of Jacob was the true conqueror after all. He is infinitely superior to the gods of the nations. Those nations and their gods will come and go, but the God of Israel reigns eternally. And His promises remain to show that He is God and there is no other besides Him. 
This is something that his people had witnessed time and time again. Right? We've talked about the first exodus where Pharaoh and his gods were defeated. We see this in the plagues that the gods of Egypt were no match for the God of Israel. He dismantled them one by one, which is why when God brings his people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, one of the first things he tells them is, you shall have no other gods before me. In the book of Samuel, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they set it up in the house of their god, Dagon. But when they come in the following morning, what's wrong with Dagon? Well, he's face down on the floor. So the Philistines, what they do is they they pick him up and they try to prop him back up in his place. But there's an even further problem that happens, right? They come in the following day, and not only is Dagon in the same position, face down on the floor, but his head and his hands are cut off. They were like, Dagon it. (laughs) (laughs) Got to drop a dad joke in there. Unlike Dagon, the God of Jacob needs no propping up. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. What about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Elijah suggests a contest between Baal and the God of Israel. He says to the prophets of Baal, Hey, why don't you guys, we'll stand around this altar and you guys call down fire in the name of your God to consume this altar. And I'll do the same. I'll I'll call down fire in the name of my God to consume the altar. And whoever's God answers by fire, that's the true God. You know what happens. The the, the prophets of Baal, they try and they try to conjure their God. They they cut themselves and they wail and they limp around the altar like a bunch of crazy people. But it was all in vain. There was no voice. There was no fire. The text says no one answered. No one paid attention to what they were doing. So Elijah mocks them. He says to the prophets of Baal, well, perhaps your God is in the restroom relieving himself. Or maybe he can't be bothered because he's gone on vacation. Elijah says, let me show you what a real God can do. Let me show you what a real God is all about. And Elijah prays and he says, oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you alone are God in Israel. And when Elijah prays these things, the text tells us that the fire of the Lord fell down from heaven. And when the people saw it, they fell flat on their faces and they begin to cry, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Emmaus, the God you worship today wins every contest. He is victorious in every battle. There is no showdown where his hand has been forced to accept defeat. And this second exodus in the book of Ezra is no exception. Just look at what comes next. Once again, we see that God is faithful to bring his people home. That's what chapter 2 shows us. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter 2, but I I would like to read verse 1. Look at what verse 1 of chapter 2 says. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles 
whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then in in verse 2 and beyond, the naming begins, right? The names of those who followed God on this second exodus are listed. And one thing that this list does is it shows us the third way that God's faithfulness is revealed. Which is that God's promise to His people will not fail. God's promise to His people will not fail. Through all the twists and turns that have led to this point, God has kept His word. Just listen to what one commentator says about this. He says that the significance of Ezra 2 is that it shows how the exiles who returned to Jerusalem were to be the raw material from which God would now bring forth further fulfillments of the promise He made to Abraham. You will no doubt remember the promise that God made to Abraham. God said this, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply your offspring after you so that you become a great nation. And Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring this land. The land in which you sojourn, the land of Canaan, will be for you an everlasting possession. And there I will be your God. Let's hear in chapter 2 of Ezra. We see that this promise is still being upheld. Even through all the, the long years of God's people being faithless. Even through the long years of God's people being sent into exile. They had not been cut off from what God had spoken to Abraham, their father. Of course, if you were to read chapter 2 in its entirety, and I suggest that you do, one thing you might notice is that this list in many ways doesn't seem to be reflective of the great nation that God promised to Abraham. This is no means Israel by, at the height of its greatness. This is not Israel at its most impressive This is only a remnant. Verse 64 of Ezra 2 notes that the whole assembly together was 42,360. Now there's a lot of back and forth and scholarly debate about this number and how it relates to chapter 2 as a whole and how it relates to a similar list in the book of Nehemiah. Some scholars will tell you that this number was actually perhaps much higher than what is listed here. But I think the point is clear enough. The second exodus is noticeably smaller than the first. This doesn't exactly look like a family that outnumbers the stars in the heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. But I said it once a moment ago, and I'll say it one more time. Looks can be deceiving. Yes, this group of people, this remnant... That's returning to Jerusalem. It looked small, right? It looked like God's promise was at a precarious ebb. But listen, friends, God knew exactly what He was doing. He he knew it because one day from these beleaguered people and out of this ruined land, a deliverer would emerge to lead a final exodus. You see, the book of Ezra was not the last time that God would stir the heart of a king for the liberation of his people. No, a ruler greater than Cyrus has appeared. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would be raised up to set the captives free and bind up the brokenhearted. He would liberate for himself a new chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, one that is called to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the excellencies of him who brings us out of darkness to dwell with him in marvelous light. And yet this liberation we're talking about, it wouldn't happen in a way that anyone was expecting. For one thing, the temple that provided the resources for this liberation, it was not Babylonian, it was Galilean. Destroy this temple, Jesus had said, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews responded, it has taken 40 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. What, Jesus, are you crazy? They did not realize, of course, what temple he was speaking about. He was speaking about the temple of his body, John says. They didn't understand that he was claiming to be the temple. From him comes all we need for our Exodus journey. It comes from the temple of the Word made flesh and dwelling among us full of grace and truth. So our final Exodus, it does not come about by plagues being inflicted upon the unbelieving world, not like in the first Exodus. Instead, our final Exodus comes through the man, Jesus Christ. It all begins on a Roman cross where He was inflicted in His own body by our plague. The plague that we justly deserve because of our faithlessness. So He's not only a lion, He's also a lamb. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of our faithless world, the world that rejected Him. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. That's what the world did to Jesus. But God so loved that world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have life everlasting. And so the only question that needs to be asked today is are you on His list? Just like in the book of Ezra, Jesus knows the names of everyone who will join Him on this final exodus He is leading. So is your name written on the Lamb's book of life? Does He know your name? Are you journeying with Him toward that city whose designer and builder is God? Here's how you know the answer to that question. And it all comes down to one thing. It boils down to whether you are living by the promises of God. Do you believe that He will be faithful to keep His Word? The names listed in Ezra 2, these people were not told that things would be easier for them in Jerusalem. They weren't doing this because they wanted a higher standard of a living. In fact, all signs pointed that the opposite was going to happen. Jerusalem was a land in ruin. It was a wasteland. So by all indication, God's people were not going to have a better quality of life there. But that's not why they were doing this. That's not why they were going. Now the reason that these people were willing to pick up their lives and make the long journey home back to a ruined land is because they believed what God had said. It's that simple. 
They were trusting in God to keep His promise. And so the question that lies before every one of us today is can we say the same? Can we say that we are trusting in the same God that they trusted? Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says that every word that God speaks will prove true. Psalm 25 assures us that none who wait on the Lord, none who trust in Him will be put to shame. Do you believe that, Christian? As you've heard about the faithfulness of your God today, is your heart being stirred to trust Him? If you can say yes to that, then let me give you some assurance here. And I'll close with this. I want to assure you, He knows your name. He knows your name. Your name is on His list, and it will never be expunged. Which means that He will bring you safely home. With every step that you take on this Exodus journey, He is abiding with you to remind you of His promise. Day by day, He's saying, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, I will not leave you or forsake you. Thus says the Lord, He who created you, He who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, He says, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Christian, you will not fall in the wilderness. You will not fail to reach your destination. You will not faint on the journey. Now you will make it safely home. That's the promise of your God to you. And you can be sure that He's going to keep it because of what He has told you. He has told you, even when you're faithless, I'm still faithful. For those who are here today, who would say, yes, I believe that. I believe that God is faithful to me. He's, he's going to bring me home to be with Jesus. If you can say that today, we want to invite you to come with us to the communion table. In just a moment, we're going to come and we're going to receive the sacred communion meal. This meal, what it really is, is it's a taste of home for those who believe. It's a feast in the wilderness sent to us from the land where we will one day dwell with the Lord. So if you know today that that's your true home, You're invited to come with us to the table and partake of the bread and the cup. We're going to do that by beginning in the first row here and moving to the back of the room. We'll come down the aisle over here on this side of the room and we'll make our way to the table. But if you cannot say that today, if you cannot say that you personally know the faithfulness of God, we ask you not to come. Instead, we would ask you to remain in your seat And think over what you've heard today. Consider what it would mean for you to pick up your life and join us on this Exodus journey. Ponder the Lamb who died to take away the sins of the world. If you'll turn from your sin and turn to Him and trust that His death is a saving death for you, then your name, you will find your name added to His list. I promise you that. Let's end here with a word of prayer and we'll come. Lord, we know our true dwelling is with you. It's in the place you're preparing for us. 
And we believe that you will be faithful to bring us safely to that place. So Lord, nourish us and strengthen us for the journey as we come to your table today. As we feed on the food of Christ's body and blood, give us still more grace to trust your promises. And for anyone who's not yet come to that place of trusting you, God, we ask that you'd stir their hearts today to join this final exodus that Jesus is leading. Pray in his name. Amen. Church, come to the feast. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.